0: Scripture reading this morning is Genesis chapter 3, verses 9 to 24. Remember this portion of the story of God as it is written in the book that we love from Genesis chapter 3, verses 9 through 24. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain and childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I, command, which I commanded you saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of, the, of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us knowing good and evil and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out and at the east of the garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flame, with, the flaming, with the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. The word of the Lord. So, we'll be taking a look at the last half of Chapter 3 today. Next week, we'll talk about Chapter 4. How many of you have ever seen the giant Luna moth? Raise your hand. Okay. It's that big green sucker. It's enormous. It's, uh, It's an extraordinary creation. It's huge and green and always guaranteed to cause a stir when the grandkids discover one on a walk. But like most moths, and I thought this was interesting when I read this about it, like most moths, it is missing a feature that almost all creatures, as a matter of fact, all creatures that I know of have. Do you know what it is? A mouth. It doesn't have a mouth. Matter of fact, most moths do not have mouths. The giant luna moth survives for about one week once it emerges from its cocoon. It lives off nutrients stored in its body that it ate as a caterpillar. It was designed to be self-sustaining for its brief life as a moth. We, and most of the rest of the creation too, but we, we're not created to be self-sustaining. God created food to sustain us throughout our lives and he gave us a desire called hunger to lead us to that food. God designed many desires into us that would help direct us to the next good thing that he had for us. Desire created both an awareness of our need as well as an appreciation for the gift that met that need when we received it. It was a reminder that we were humbly dependent on God and on his creation. God's direction and his actual presence in the garden with Adam and Eve and with all of creation guaranteed that no desire would be frustrated beyond what was good for our growth and our joy. To this very day, we desire food to sustain our bodies. We desire companionship for our emotional health. We desire fellowship with God for our spiritual life, and we hunger for all of it even in the new creation, the one that will occur when Jesus returns. Even in that new creation, that new heaven and earth, citizens of the kingdom of heaven will desire to be refreshed by a tree whose fruit will feed us and whose leaves will make us a tea that will heal and enlighten us individually and will heal us collectively. It will heal the nations. In that great place, because God is infinite and his love is boundless, our desires will never be disappointed, even though they grow from joy to joy throughout eternity. Every desire will, once again, find its fulfillment in the gracious love of God. Our hunger and our desire were created to be part of who we are, And this differentiates Judaism and Christianity from nearly all of the Asian religions. Desire is a good thing. It was put into us. It was part of God's gift. It is part of the image or what helps us find the image of God in us. It was part of our design and God was pleased to call it good and very good. But the disharmony and the alienation of trying to take those good things to feed that hunger and to own the good as our own. To own our heart's desire for ourselves, independent of our relationship with God, indeed to make us equal uh, to God and to make God unnecessary. That turned something good, our hunger and our desire, it turned something good into a constant source of sorrow and alienation. For the first time, desire was felt as frustration, and pain became satisfaction. Uh, and pa- I'm sorry. For the first time, desire was felt as frustration and pain, because satisfaction, joy, and even survival, were no longer guaranteed, because God had been removed had been a distance had been put between us and him for the first time we were truly isolated and alone we had become as gods gods without power and without the community of love that god enjoyed within the trinity which is again reflected in today's text and don't you think that's interesting i mean it's really hard to to not see the trinity uh, in that closing statement of god as he talks uh of himself to himself. Desire becomes corrupted and it becomes destructive once we opt out of the community of love and harmony for which we were created, once we chose to be gods in competition with our creator. We turned to creation and to one another to sustain hungers that could only be satisfied in him. Our sin frustrated our efforts to restore our relationship with God. Again, the world paints sin as just us being naughty. But that's not how God looks at it. He looks at it and understands, and he reveals to us that what we have done is we have cut our lifeline. And and we have made our desires a source of frustration. And the, the gospel is about turning that around and changing that. Meanwhile, any apparent success or happiness enjoyed by others around us becomes a source of envy and self-reproach. We look at them and say, wow, look at how good they're having it. How come I'm the only one who seems so screwed up? I wish I had what they had. I wish I were like them. I wish I looked like them. I wish I had their occupation. I wish I had their advantages. Competition replaced a fellowship of kindred hearts pursuing God's glory together. In the biblical account that follows, the corrosive power of sin is powerfully and sorrowfully demonstrated in two relationships. That between husband and wife, and that between siblings, which we'll study next week, the Cain and Abel story. This week I'll focus on the relationship between husband and wife, cut off from God, its source of satisfaction. Desire is expressed between husband and wife, not in being a help to one another, doing God's work together, but it's expressed instead in alienation from God in terms of power, Power instead of love, and mastery instead of fellowship. Desire is not only corrupted, desire becomes predatory. We either become predators or parasites to get what we need. I want to reflect on God's words to Eve, as well as his words to Cain, which I didn't read today, we'll be reading it next week. Uh, Before he, this is Cain, before he chooses to kill his brother Abel, God says, listen, beware, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Interestingly enough, the words desire and master, in English and in Hebrew, appear in God's words to Eve, when he says, yet your desire will be for your husband. And he will rule over, or master, it's actually the word master you. The points of similarity are the use of two important words, master and desire. Master, which is the Hebrew word, the English translation of the Hebrew word mashal. In chapter 4, sin threatens to master Cain and to turn his sulking resentment into a murderous rage. In like fashion, Adam's resentment of Eve's, which he's very open about, Adam's resentment of Eve, whom he now blames for his bad choice to eat the forbidden fruit, is to remain in control of their relationship. It will be something that they will always have to strive against. Adam will strive to master Eve. The other word is the word desire or tashuka in Hebrew. It's a very rare word. As a matter of fact, it's only used three times in the whole Bible. It shows up in chapter three regarding Adam and Eve and chapter four regarding Cain and then doesn't show up again uh, until uh, the Song of Solomon, when it is the desire of the of the of the loved for the beloved. <clears throat> it is remarkable that this word, which only appears three times, should show up Here in God's reaction to sin in two back to back accounts. Teshuka describes a strong and very focused desire, a craving, really. It is the hunger of a lover for the beloved that results in passion. And this is the clear meaning of the third instance in the Song of Solomon. It is also the hunger of a predator for its prey and that results, of course, in conquest. This is the clear meaning when God speaks of the Teshuka or the desire that sin has for Cain. It is a predator. He will devour you. In both cases, the word desire describes an obsessive craving that has focused all of its hopes for fulfillment on a single target, which is not God. In the case of a predator, the prey is physically devoured. In the case of a lover, and I put that word in quotations here, the beloved is emotionally devoured. If the cravings of passion spring from selfish hunger and not love, it is often called, correctly, lust and it is nearly as predatory as the lion hunting a wildebeest. Adam and Eve were estranged from their creator, and given that Adam bitterly blamed Eve for his sin, they were also estranged from each other. Eve's desire for Adam is estranged from God, and like sin's desire from Cain has nothing or little to do with love the desire that god says will obsess eve is more like the hunger of a predator for its prey and has more to do with conquest and mastery what god is warning here this is a warning it's not it's heaven knows it's not a recommendation it's not a corrective blessing this is a warning to adam and eve his warning is that the woman will desire to master her husband just as sin desires to master Cain. In return, the man will forcibly seek to master his wife. Competition and conflict will replace love and harmony. What was supposed to have been two people seeking to do God's work together and rejoice in it has become a self-focused disharmony and dysfunction of competition and sometimes... Predatory. The disharmony and alienation of trying to own or to master our heart's desire for ourselves, independent of our relationship with God, turned desire from a blessing into a constant source of sorrow and alienation, not just from God, but from one another. Increasing pain attended even our desire to form families and have children, Fulfilling God's blessing to be fruitful in creation. Pain arose in many other human experiences because because satisfaction and even survival was no longer guaranteed, and we were isolated. When you look at the universe, how many of you have seen some of the new photography from that new space telescope? It's mind-boggling what's going on out there. But if you read about it, and I just look at the pretty pictures, when I read a little bit about it, I hear what the astronomers are saying. There are whole galaxies colliding with each other in space. I mean, do you realize that if, if space were in a vacuum, that we wouldn't be able to hear ourselves think? It'd be so filled with noise that we would from everything that's going on, crashing in the heavens, that's going on. And yet all of this, it's in God's heart and mind. He, It is balanced, it is controlled, it is in harmony because it is his will. And when we were safe in his hand, even the scariness was thrilling as opposed to terrifying. It created... And it put an edge on our sensation. Even pain had a value of increasing our delight and not driving us to panic or escape. Much of God's joy is raucous and frightening because we are so fragile in comparison. Planets and galaxies collide. Supernovas explode. Black holes, holes implode. It is quite the fireworks show that we get to watch from our little blue-green refuge. But now, instead of experiencing the cataclysms of, this, of life as, as excitement, just like we'd go on a roller coaster today. Well, some people do. I don't. I don't get it. I don't know. I, I'm still just terrified by it. But some people find it just, it really gives them, it wakes them up, and it makes them more alive than they were. Instead of experiencing the cataclysms, for instance, of childbirth, in the refuge of indescribable intimacy with God. Intimacy that takes away the fear. Intimacy that takes control when we are out of control. Instead of that, the overwhelming experience of birthing was now endured in the context of isolation and panic, maybe even resentment and fear. Desire became want. Pain became terror. Hope became futility. Sin isn't about us being naughty. Sin is about us being disconnected and falling uncontrollably through creation space. Thus, the relationships that were meant to be the most intimate, sustaining, and empowering when we lived in harmony with love with our creator became poisonous hotbeds of envy, resentment, and struggle. What's the national average for the length of time that a marriage lasts? It's it's abysmal. It's terrifying for the future of our society. Sin has set us against God. It set us against our spouses. And as we shall see next week, it sets us against our own family. Our hunger has us looking at all of creation as a buffet for our personal satisfaction. Our desire makes us predators that try to devour those we dislike or have no other use for, or it makes us leeches, attaching ourselves to those that we say we love, sucking the life out of them. It's a dismal picture, because that's what sin has done. This is why God is so heartbroken by all that's happened. But the gospel has begun, even here and even now, to reverse the effects of the fall for those who will enter into its shelter. The gospel begins the reconciliation and restoration of our relationship with God, first and foremost. Regarding our relationships to one another, the gospel and the teaching of Jesus Christ is that we should learn how to love one another. Life isn't a buffet for us to go out and just use everyone and everything to satisfy our hungers as we see fit. We are here to love those around us. We're here to love creation itself. I suggest to you again as I have many other times, that the Holy Spirit gives the most practical commandment of love through the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5.21, when he says pointedly, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Husbands and wives who are unable or unwilling to subject themselves to one another will never, and I, this, is un, this is not unilateral. This is mutual. It has to be each subjecting themselves to one another in the fear of Christ. Husband and wives who are unable or unwilling to subject themselves to one another will never reflect the image of the Trinity or the image of Christ's love for his church. And I I hasten to say here that there's two very important clauses in that command, to subject ourselves to one another, but moderating that and calling us to think as we do this is the in the fear of Christ part. Our part, I, I can want Gail, I, 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 I tease every now and then say, well, uh, when she, that that I would like her to just spend some more time at home catering to my whims. Seems like a good idea. There's too many things that I want for myself that, you know, and I think the default position of serving the other person is, is probably a good default. But you know what? In an intimate relationship when we know one another well, there's more required. There's knowledge there that, that needs to be plugged in. What is God trying to do in the life of my spouse? And is their request seem to be part of that work or does it seem to be against it? if their desire is to causes abuse of me or anyone else, then it's important to ask, is this really what God wants for them? Is this making them more Christ-like? And if not, then it's a desire that deserves and needs to be discussed. It becomes a point of discussion and, and even refusal. If God if if we are clear that God's will in this person's life does not include this desire that they have asked us to join them in. It's complicated, it's messy, it's difficult, it's not a nice neat formula like some people have made whole Bible seminars and, and built a whole empire out of saying. It's not just up to the wife to be subjected to her husband. That's baloney, and it doesn't, it hasn't meant anywhere in the New or Old Testament. We are called on a daily basis to be subject to one another and to be listening to God's will as we do that, as we request help and as we give it. God will never be able to perfect Christ in us unless we learn what it means to subject ourselves unselfishly to one another, including our spouses. We will never escape the bondage and the futility of power and control games in our relationships with our spouses or family members or even in our community unless we find the courage to enter into those relationships in subjection to our Creator and in subjection to the good and the well-being of those we strive to love. We cannot find the strength to do this difficult obedience without seeking and trusting God's work in us. We cannot trust that our love will be selfless enough or that it will be received with love when we give it. We are in need of God's instruction and his grace to purify our love for others. We are in need of that same grace and that same power that he might turn their hearts to forgive and accept the love that we give them. Jesus Christ is our bridge back to God. He is the hope of our restoration, of our complete resurrection, and I would remind you, God can't resurrect what's not dead. He cannot transform what is not yielded to him. It begins the moment you turn to him and give him your life. It could could begin right here and right, right now. It could be renewed right here and right now. The sin that has made us predators feeding on each other has been conquered by God, even if it hasn't yet been conquered in us. We can begin again to explore and to act on what it means to be image bearers of God's glory and love. It will cost us everything. Everything. And that's okay. Because nothing we have, nothing we are, not even our greatest dream or hunger for ourself, nothing compares to the dream that God has for us. Nothing even comes close. We are settling for everything. Our problem isn't that we want too much. Our problem is always that we settle for too little. We are settling for houses instead of the peace of heading home. We are settling for independence instead of the joy of being family. We are settling for mastery instead of the life-creating power of love. Scraps and pieces, shadows and whispers. We want too little because we see too little. Jesus said this in John chapter 10, as you can read it in the message. I'll be explicit then. I am the gate of the sheep. All those others are up to no good. Sheep stealers, every one of them. But the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the gate. Anyone who goes through me will be cared for, will freely go in and out and find pasture. A thief is only there to steal and to kill and to destroy. I came so that they may have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of." Adam and Eve ended up in trouble because they began to suspect that God was holding out on them, that the desire they had directed by the logic that they were able to attain from the knowledge that they had, suggested to them that there was another path away from God that would yield more blessing than the one they had with God. Jesus reaffirms that, number one, he is the only source of joy and of life. And it's not just God getting a long life, it's abundant life. It's a life that is called back, that is restored, that is plugged back into both the creator and his creation. It can begin right now. And it will end when we see him face to face and then it begins all over again. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the warning that you give us. We are sinners, Lord God, and yet it is a matter of rejoicing for us that that you can overcome that, that you have decided to do that and you haven't done it grudgingly but joyfully for the joy set before you of having us in your company again. You endure the cross, despising the shame. Lord Jesus, thank you for your goodness and your kindness and your grace to us. I thank you for your holiness. I thankfully that either your holiness did not did not allow you to just settle, to either destroy creation or to just settle and say, Well, I guess this is as good as it's gonna get, so we'll just we'll just try to make the best of it. Instead of Lord, you've made a way where there is no way. We praise you and thank you, and ask that you would help us to have the courage to give everything that we are and have over to you for resurrection's sake. Amen.